Welcome to the Dear Doc Podcast, where we will discuss the business of running a dental practice with a panel of experts. Now, your host, Dr. Christopher Hoffpower. Hey guys, this is Doc Hoffpower again, coming to you from my home studio here in Alvin, Texas. Um, Thank you again for joining us for another episode of the Dear Doc Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, and this is actually kind of part two of our first recording. It was running a little bit long, and I wanted to make sure we cut it up into chunks that you could really digest, and we have a really good topic for this one. Jeff Cole, previous ADA president, previous AGD president, only living man in history to have served in both posts, uh, joins us today to talk a little bit about student debt. Um, the number of dental schools out there, dentist to, uh, dentist to patient, patient blah, 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 blah. I wish I could cut that part out because it sounds silly, dentist to patient ratio, and where he sees the world of dentistry going uh, in the next few years, and he's in a unique position to comment on that. So Jeff, talk to us a little bit. Talk to us about student debt. Um, I, I know you never hear about this. Uh, no one's talking about it these days. Well, I'll tell you, um, I've been an advocate uh, for students, for student debt, long before I was ADA president, even before I was uh, on the ADA board. And I, I look at advocacy, particularly for student debt and solutions to student debt, um, in a number of ways. We are really overdue for a complete reauthorization, rewrite of the Higher Education Act. And I wanna say for about the last decade, I keep hearing, oh, maybe year after next, we're going to do that. It seems like it never happens. And so one of the things that we have to do is to make sure that even if it's piecemeal, that, that we do all we can to advocate for the fact that federal loans are as fair as they could be. Um, one of the things that I, I lecture to dental students about is kind of the whole strategy of working uh, with relationships, working with other organizations, and um, making sure that, that as a group, we're advocating. And one of those areas was student debt because it was actually working with um, a congressman who's now retired from Wisconsin, Petri, who was actually looking at one of the most comprehensive bills uh, to help make the federal student loan program better. And a lot of what is in ADA policy, and I worked with the students at the time to make sure that ASDA was comfortable and on board with that. Um, are things like having interest accrue but not compound, uh, making sure that that federal loans can be um, uh, uh, refinanced, those type of things. And so we continue to do that. Right now, there's the Ready Act, um, which is talking about trying to make sure that while um, uh, students are residents, that they can put their loans in deferment um, and that the interest will not accrue. So that is certainly one of the aspects about student debt, but it's only 
a small portion. One of the other areas that we need to do is to make sure that if there's refinancing out there, that we do all we can as organized dentistry to make sure that what's available is the best products out there. Um, there was a time, and so there's a lot of refinancing um, companies, a lot of banks behind that, a lot of equity interest because there was a lot of money to be made. Uh, one of the things the American Dental Association did was actually partnered a number of years ago, I think it was 2015, with Darien Rowayton Bank, DRB, to come up with a loan refinancing program. Now at the time, every other refinancing program when they would partner with a dental organization, there would be a per capita um, royalty, $200 uh, on average per head for whoever came in and refinanced their loans. Right. What we did was negotiated with DRB and instead of getting a per capita amount, we negotiated to get a percentage of the loan origination amount. So we go in, and negotiated a half percent, which at the time the average loan was $260,000, which would be twelve, thirteen hundred dollars $1,300 for the organization. Right. After we did that, because our board was animate that the American Dental Association did not want to make money mm -hmm. on student debt, we went back to DRB. And after we negotiated something that on average was five, six times higher than the going rate, we said, we don't want your money. What further discount can you give ADA members, which was another quarter point, which it was another $3,000. <clears> so when we initiated that program, the average student could save about $38,000 off of their, off of their students. That's fantastic. But you know, Jeff, we don't hear about these things. And, and this is one of the great things about having you on here to have conversations with you is that you, you bring up things I didn't even know were happening. So I, I well, have, I'll, I'll tell you what the beauty of it was. Because as an MBA and a numbers egghead, I get a lot of, of enjoyment out of things like that. But what I tell dental students, that was advocacy. Because when we changed that, we were the disruptor in that refinancing. We changed the marketplace. And all of a sudden, every other refinancing group out there was getting much more competitive, much more aggressive, because they knew dental, dental students, new dentists, were a good investment. Very good investment. Absolutely. And what I told students was, because they said, well, who should we who should we partner with? I said, whoever gives you the best deal. But what I want you to know is this, the reason that you're getting the best deal from anybody is because we changed that marketplace. And that's an example, I think, about how as, as dentists and as leaders, we can be the ones to drive disruption, to drive change, right. as long as it's in the best interest of our profession and our patients. So talk to me a little bit about the, um, the current student debt. Uh, you know, we, I, I'm sure you saw the, the, um, the article in the Wall Street Journal about the orthodontist who has over a million dollars worth of debt. And, 
you know, people are saying 400 to $500,000 is what people are getting out with nowadays. Um, what are we going to do about this? And, and is it something that the ADA can actively um, work on? And something else I want you to follow up with is, you know, whether or not it's within the, the, the scope uh, is, is, I guess, what I'm asking. I, and also, I, want, I think we could certainly help. I'm, I'm smiling and chuckling a little bit because uh, I think there's a lot of people out there that think when you're elected ADA president, you get a magic wand and a right? magic magic wand jeff don't don't deny it we've seen you with it whatever whatever you say people have to listen and it and it's far from the truth um but i think that there's a number of ways that we need to um that we need to address um debt within within students um one of them is to make sure that we advocate in every way to make sure the conditions are as good as we can. The other way is that we need to make sure that there's proper education. Uh, I've spoken a lot about the basics of debt management, which really starts, in my opinion, before somebody selects a dental school to go to, before somebody picks a profession. You know, we were talking earlier offline, uh, I'm not a legacy. Right, you know, many of our new dentists, their fathers, their grandmothers, their great grandparents, maybe something else we have in common, actually. Yes, so I am not. And for us to be a diverse profession, we have to make sure that anybody who looks at dentistry as a profession, where no matter what their background is, should be able to go through the education and be able to at least make a living to pay back their loans. Um, And I think that that's a huge part of it. Some of it is education. And I will tell you, when I I first got involved at the American Dental Association, it was on the Council on Dental Practice. And when I looked at a message that was being sent to graduating dental students at the time, I blew a rod. Because it said, you're now in your last year of dental school. Now it's time for graduation. It's time for you to think about how much do I owe and how do I go about it? I'm like, that's the worst message to be sending. Right. They should be knowing their loan conditions, how much, the more that you look at that, it's like your blood pressure, your weight, or anything else. The more that you look and understand what your, your loan situation is, you take ownership of that, and then you're in control of your own destiny. If not, the biggest fear, one of the biggest fears that people have is the fear of the unknown, right? So why in the world would anybody leave to the unknown something that is so difficult like that, where to get a good return on investment, you don't even know what your investment is. And I think that there, you know, we, we hear about choices to be made as far as the dental schools, lifestyles, you know, how you're going to finance, what you're going to finance. I think that that has to be as a business person. And right. everybody in dental school has to be a business person because you're entering into debt and you are mortgaging basically your future. Your Absolutely. Future. Absolutely. So I think that the, the education piece um, and, and the advocacy piece 
is, is the way. Um, the other, and I know in our, our last segment, we talked a little bit about ADA practice transitions and how that was really trying to address the needs of, of our members. Basically, when I go to dental schools and people are graduating, they're like, Dr. Cole, can you find me a job? The best thing that we could do for graduating dentists is to make sure that they have the opportunity for mentorship, that they had good job opportunities out there, that they have the opportunity to own a practice if that's what they want to do. Because we know the practice ownership over the life of a career makes significantly more money. If people are in it, you know, that's how they're going to measure their success. Right. Um, they're going to make more money as a business owner. If, if they don't mind, you know, what we call those headaches or those hurdles, those things that, that we deal with. And so I think that those are the ways that we're going to help um, address student debt. Um, you know, every once in a while, and when you, when you look at dental education, I remembered thinking, and this was a study the American Dental Association did, I want to say four or five years ago. Um, they did a study to see what was economically the best model of dental education. And at the time they came up and they said there was eight different models of dental education, which floored me. I thought there was maybe two. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around eight different types of well, I'm going to tell you, and then after being president president-elect of the ADA and probably touring more dental schools and talking to more deans, we have 66 different dental schools right now. I think we have 66 different models of dental education. Oh, wait a minute. That sounds, that sounds like whenever uh, you have 66 dentists weigh in on a radiograph and ask them what to do. You have 70 opinions, right? Right, exactly. Uh, and, so, and so what happens is after spending a significant amount of money to say, what are the areas that we could really cut down on the cost? There was no silver bullet. There was no right answer. Right. And so, and I think that that in organized dentistry, just like in our businesses, you know, sometimes I think um, we get into the analysis, uh, paralysis by analysis situation where we feel like if we can't make a good decision because it's not really clear, you know, sometimes we got to trust our gut. Right. We just, it's because we didn't get all the information. And sometimes despite all the information, there are some of those problems that are just too big. Absolutely. All of those really, I think what's important with the cost of dental education is we always keep that cost at the forefront but every dental school, whether they're tied to a university or they're not, have certain um, economic realities that's completely different from another institution. What we have to make sure of is that students know what they're getting themselves into. I know there's been a lot of talk now about really going to the, the pre-dental population explaining to them some of, of the basic business so that they understand where they're, you know, where they can go um, as, far as, as far as education. The one thing I worry about, we're, we're becoming a much more diverse um, profession. 
But there are some areas that we're still sorely lacking, African-American males, Hispanics to the population of the United States. Um, The the, um, Society of American Indian Dentists tells, you know, the Native Americans um, that they're not well represented um, in the dental profession. And the problem with some of these groups is if they come from an area where there is a socioeconomic problem, where, where it is, you know, a poor area, whether you're talking 200,000, 400,000, these numbers and the ability to kind of handle that um, as business concepts can, can be unthinkable. And we need to find ways to make sure that we could help mentor and educate through that process so people aren't afraid of it and say from the beginning, I'm not even going to attempt dental school because it seems too far out of reach. I don't want our profession to be an elitist profession. And I, I don't think we are, but I think that for us to, you know, anytime that we do something successful, whether it's to get a new refinancing program, to get new legislation, to be able to, in some ways, help people get great paying jobs. No matter what we do, we high five ourselves and we say, what can we even do to make it better? This is something that must always be on a radar screen because the debt piece is becoming um, it's going, it's not sustainable. manageable. It, it's, it's unsustainable at this point. Um, you know, just some quick math. What is the average dentist earning in the United States, according to IRS? Now, I don't agree with their, their numbers, but they say 158000 So if you've got a guy who gets out of the school with $158,000 in debt, and he's got $500,000 worth of loans, that's what, $5,000 per month. So that's $60,000 off the top. Look, right. So you look at the 158, you know, I mean, you're really bringing it down to maybe 90,000 after taxes. Absolutely. And, and there's, there's, there's another piece to it. Why is educational debt taxed? Shouldn't it be tax free? Maybe, maybe that's one of the routes we need to go. Yeah. And that, then that is certainly one. Um, because I think that, that, I'll tell you the other thing that I found interesting, and this goes to show you um, advocacy. So I talked to you a little bit about Congressman P. Tribe. I brought the president of ASDA with me, and we were talking about graduate student debt. And And then, by the way, folks, if that was in our last episode, if you didn't catch that. Yes. So he, um, but he was so excited to get graduate students on board because there are so many in Congress now that says, we're gonna worry about undergraduate student debt, to worry about graduate students is too much. I got a call from the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau two weeks after that. And in talking with individuals there, they were worried that student debt, particularly of graduate students, could be the next housing crisis. And so if you remember, the CFPB was put together after the housing crisis of, of 2008. And so it really showed that, you know, perhaps dentistry, working with medicine, um, you know, working with, uh, you know, veterinary medicine, 
trying to look at ways that we could make sure that graduate student debt is kept at the forefront. Because I will tell you that too many times what you say economically is right there. What we also know is those same individuals are trying to be small business owners and to try to employ others. And so there is some real economic realities that there is, um, you know, there's a whole trickle down effect if people aren't able in small businesses to move that needle forward. And that's why I think it's critical that we always have that conversation, particularly about graduate students to make sure that they are, that, that, that the plight of graduate students are being addressed. You know, it's, it's funny and it's a totally different reason, but I've been asked, why are you so passionate about student debt? And I'll, and I'll tell you why. I was a, I believe a third year dental student at Georgetown University Dental School. My work study job was in continuing education and it happened to be that that was held, housed within the Office of Admissions. And one day, the admissions director came over and pushed all my work aside, put down a bunch of, of CVs and said, I need you to call these individuals. Emory University just closed, and I want you to talk to them into coming to Georgetown. Wow. So what ended up happening, some of those individuals ended up coming to Georgetown. It was the first dental school that closed because of what was, at the time, a policy bubble. The federal government had been giving money to dental schools for expansions, and then overnight they pulled it back because they realized there wasn't a shortage of dentists. Wait a um, minute, wait a minute. That sounds a little familiar. Doesn't it? And so what ended up happening, some of those people that came to Georgetown were at Georgetown when Georgetown announced that it was closing. And so there is a part of me we're not looking at a policy bubble here when we talk about student debt, but we're talking about the possibility of an economic bubble. If student debt gets too far out of control, then people aren't going to be able to pay back their student loans. Right now, the average is about seven years. Dentists, thank God, are still doing it. They're good stewards of their money. But when will that, that time happen? We don't know, but I've been told by certain, you know, by different economists that it could happen unless we start letting that pressure off. I've gone on record time and time again. I believe that we are two to three years away from an economic crisis, and I think it's going to be just as bad as it was in the early 2000s. But we'll see. I hope I'm wrong. Well, and I will tell you, so, you know, one thing that was funny, and I think that you know, when you talk about an economic crisis, we went through one in 2008. Right. And the beauty of the Health Policy Institute of the ADA um, and Dr. Marco Vujicic, the, the one who heads that, um, is that he brought some real data to us. 2008 um, was certainly a landmark, but his information showed us that actually the economic turndown, or at least the stagnation at dentistry, had been going on for years before that, 
it just wasn't quite noticed until that 2008. And every time there was, you know, there was a myth out there that I don't think people believe since, since then because things have drastically changed. But there was a myth that, that dentistry was somehow immune to economic cycles. And we know that that's not the case, right? We know that's not the case in, in the type of procedures that are happening. Um, and so I think that, and to kind of address that, because you're saying, okay, let's talk a little bit in the future. And you were, you were asking about what the percentage of, of, you know, students are or graduating students or dentists to the population. Here's the thing I focus on. Not so much the population, but the population of those coming to the dentist. If you look at the HPI information, there are only two demographics that are actually growing. One is underprivileged children, those of low income who are Medicaid eligible. That is increasing, thank God, to our advocacy efforts in trying to up reimbursements with, with Medicaid. The other is the wealthier elderly, elderly Americans. Hey, that's what my practice is created to, to serve. Okay. And so, when, and so when we look economically at Medicare for All, right, we have to ask ourselves, we're fixing the one segment that's not broken because we're not talking Medicare is for all. So those that can pay for it as well as those that can't. And so for me, when we're looking at those areas that are stagnant, and one of those is, is elderly Americans who are low income, right now only 25% of them are seeking dental care. There is a huge opportunity there in adult Medicaid. When we look at the overall population and we look at the one area that's actually decreasing, this is what really scares me working age adults, those that have benefits. And so when you ask them why and they tell you that it's cost, it's a perceived value. And so for them, it's the cost and it's not the dollars and cents. They have the ability to pay. It's that they have priorities in other ways. And so in some of that, that becomes really an oral health literacy issue. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity within the economic data that we have to really position ourselves. See, what I loved is when I talked about a certain segment and as a kind of, a, I always joke that I'm not a market researcher, but I play one on TV. That's, right. you know, I've never been able to actually um, uh, uh, do it in real life, but you get to see those things. When you raise your hands and say, that's the demographic of my practice, that's the type of thing that dentists have to do now. They have to know where they're going, who they're trying to address, and look at those specific barriers. Because when we look at barriers, particularly about convenience, about location, about things like that, that's more about the consumerism piece that's driving the healthcare economy than it really is about dollars and cents, the ability for someone to pay. When we talk about cost being a factor, that is the words that the consumer is using, right? That it, in their mind, it costs too much. 
it doesn't mean that they do not have the ability to pay. In some cases, right. low-income individuals, it does. But when we're looking at, in most demographics, the highest amount of the population that's seeing the dentist is only about 60%. Yeah. There is a huge opportunity. So I, what I concentrate on, especially for new dentists coming out, is for them to understand the landscape and understand um, where their opportunities lie, where their skill sets lie. You know, we, we had a situation in Delaware. We were one of the worst for children's Medicaid. We don't have an adult Medicaid program. And we were abysmal for children's Medicaid. We made that program. And at, at a certain time, we were probably one of the highest reimbursements. We had 75, 80% of the dentists involved um, in the Medicaid program. And there was no reason why low-income children couldn't come to the dentist. That's why you're not only seeing that growth in that segment of the population as far as seeking dental care, but if you look at all of the specialties of dentistry, pediatric dentistry is the one that is growing leaps and bounds over any other specialty. Well, that makes a lot of sense. All right, so the last thing we're to cover on this section is um, the number of dental schools out there, and you gave us a perfect segue whenever you were talking about Columbia. So Texas just got its um, fourth dental school, um, which there's a lot of people who aren't real happy about it, and it was um, funded specifically uh, to address the access to care issue, which um, on our last episode I referred to as the care to access issue. And we have people out there right now who are going to prison because they're going out with $5 gift cards to give to parents to bring their kids into the dentist so that they can get paid by Medicaid. And they're committing Medicaid fraud by doing that. But that's the only way they're getting those people to come into the office. And so it, it makes you think, like you were saying, there's just not a perceived value in dentistry unless someone's in pain. And so we're spending all this money to make these additional schools, pump out these additional students with the thought that the students are going to stay put where the dental school is located. But in reality, we know that's not what happens at all. And we've tried it time and time again. So that's my opinion. I'd love to hear your opinion on it. Well, I'll tell you, you know, um, I, I'm starting to think that dental schools are like DSOs. You've seen one, you've seen one. Um, and I and I think that when you start looking particularly at schools, like I said, they said there was eight different models of education, and I would tell you there's probably almost 56. as many uh, dental schools. Um, I I see some disconnects um, in in the economics of some of the dental schools. I know that there are dental schools that have opened, um, that are in certain areas, that are funded by the state so that they will bring um, dentists in um, who are uh, from the state, bring them into the dental school so that they will practice in the area that they were from. Um, one of the things that I would like to see economically, because you said you want me to act like a futurist, and I ask more questions than I have answers, to be honest with you. But one of the paradigms that we have worked under in dentistry for decades 
is that dentists, number one, go back to where they're from. Right. Number two, they go and practice where they went to dental school. And number three, they go to where they did their residency. Now, this is anecdotal. This is not good economic scientific data. But when I talk to millennials now, when I talk to students in dental school and I ask them, where do you want to practice? Their answer to me is where the opportunity lies. So it brings up to me a question. Are these individuals going to follow the same paradigm or is there really a paradigm shift now in where we're going? What we do know, whether people are, you know, Native Americans, African Americans, Italians, Irish, people do have a way, particularly when there are um, certain ethnic communities, that they have a way that they are the ones that serve their communities. And so I think that there is an important piece to make sure that those individuals, particularly from, say, rural areas or, or from certain ethnic backgrounds, are brought into the dental schools. What I'm afraid is happening in some dental schools is that those students within the state basically don't bring in the same income as out-of-state schools. Right. And so we're getting a situation where those individuals who are willing to pay whatever it costs will come. And I think that really brings up the question, where will they end up going? And so I wish I had a, a good um, basis to say, this is where I think some of this is going. My gut tells me there is a paradigm shift. And so when we have a program like ADA Practice Transitions that looking, is looking at practices in rural areas and is more trying to match people based on practice philosophy right. and understanding of certain patient populations as opposed to where somebody was from or went to school, that we may have that opportunity. What we've seen in that market research, that it's not clear cut. When you ask somebody, say you go to a dental, dental class, and you say, we have this practice in this rural area of Wisconsin, mm -hmm. Would you, who, how many people are interested in going? Nobody raises their hand. Right. If we say we have this practice and we're going to hold your hand and this person, you're going to know exactly how they practice. They're going to practice like you. They're going to act like your mentor. You may get two or three hands slowly go up, maybe right. questioning it. And I think it's that time either there may be a paradigm shift or we may create one. Um, here's the thing about the future. I always tell, it, when I was first elected president, the first statement that I made to the House of Delegates after I ended my comments was the future is bright. And I start almost every conversation. And since that time, in my travels throughout the country, I've heard the same thing from so many people because they believe it, that the future is bright. But here's the kicker. I think it's only as bright as we are willing to work to make it. It's not just going to happen. It's going to take a lot of hard work and sweat and collaboration to make sure we continue to move forward. Jeff, I, I can't think of a single better way 
to end this segment. I, I, I just feel bad about saying it's over now. <laughs> well, anyway, it's, I want to tell you, it was great seeing you on the campaign trail. It was great seeing you when I was president-elect. I hope to get down to Texas sometime soon. Um, maybe we could do this in person, but it that was be fantastic. Great, great to chat with you. And I do want to tell you how much I appreciate you keeping conversations that can sometimes go awry in moderation. And so I think that in the end, as professionals, it's always great that we keep in mind to a large extent we're all on the same team. Yeah, I, I agree. It's really hard to understand what the other guy is saying if you're both yelling at each other. That's, that's for All right, brother. Thank you, as always, for your time. I know you're a really busy man. Folks, this is the end of our, our second segment with uh, Dr. Jeff Cole, immediate past president of the ADA, only man in history who's still alive to <laughs> serve both as the ADA and the AG presidents. That's kind of a running gag with this, guys, if you haven't caught that yet. Um, thank you for wasting another half hour listening to the sound of my voice. We hope to see you again here soon on the Dear Doc Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Dear Doc Podcast, your source for the business and legal questions associated with your dental practice. Don't forget to subscribe to the Dear Doc Podcast on all major platforms. <laughs>